Hello, everybody. This is Zaheem Khan. It's one of my first conversations for the podcast. Uh, so thank you for joining me. Uh, YouTube, this might be my first video on my channel. It depends what I release first. Zaheem is uh, the one of the founders of RMZ Law. Uh, he's my solicitor, uh, my conveyancer for my property acquisitions. Zaheem, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you uh, jumping on as one of my first guests. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me, and it's an honor to be here, especially being the first guest. Yeah. Um, Zaheem, tell us a bit about your background and uh, how you got into the legal uh, work that you do. Um, right. So for some reason, I've been studying law since A-levels. Uh, so at the age of 16, I just decided I want to be a lawyer. I didn't know where, what I would do, what area of law I'd practice, but I've just been, I've been at it now. It's been 16 years. Um, so obviously you do your undergrad in law and then you do your postgrad and then you do your training contract, you qualify as a solicitor, you work from firm to firm to firm before realizing, you know, whether you want to stick with a firm, whether you want to stick with within the corporate kind of environment mm -hmm. or whether you want to be self-employed. And then, and then just life takes you uh, one way or the other, but it has always been the law. I, I have been practicing and studying ever since I can remember um so yeah i mean it's 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 just occurred naturally really mm. what pushed you down law what interested you in that i think i think the main reason was funnily enough there was nothing else of interest <laughs> yeah i mean uh, literally i i couldn't work with numbers it, it was it wasn't for me uh medicine science not my thing at all whatsoever um and to be honest yeah accounting finance Banking, none of that interested me in the, in, in the slightest. Initially, as a 16-year-old, I thought I'd, I'd study law and become a judge one day and be just. Um, that hasn't gone to plan, but uh, there's so many other avenues that have that have uh, taken shape. Um, so, yeah, now I'm here. So if I could give a quick backstory as to how I found you in the first place. Uh, yeah. I was doing a deal with uh, another guy from, uh, from the gym, and I went through like a... A uh, conveyancing broker of some sort. Yeah. And I needed a deal done in 48 hours. Well, I needed an exchange of contract in 48 hours. I think it ended up being a week or something because of the seller solicitor. Yeah. But we needed to get 30, 40 grand, whatever it was, over to the seller within originally it was meant to be 48 hours. And this this broker in the middle turned around and said, uh, oh, we, we could use this guy. He said that he'll do it. It's going to cost X, Y, Z, whatever. And that's the first introduction uh, to you and the whole reason that I sort of went down that line is because I'm more than happy to pay good money for efficiency um, over such a slow conveyancing what seems such a slow conveyancing process all the time so frustrating from an investor's angle um, is there any reason why we can't be exchanging contracts and doing deals in 48 hours one week two weeks is there any reason that can't happen Yes. I mean, I think the first thing to, to, to note about a property transaction is the amount of parties involved. So you will have a, you will have, if you're buying with the help of finance, you will have a bank or a lender. They will have their own requirements. There's no way they can do a survey within one week or sometimes some lenders even within two weeks. So I'm just talking about generic property transactions where, you know, more often than not, the buyer requires finance. Uh, the second is where sellers and this is something that sellers could actually work upon, is they're not ready with documentation. So for example, if you told me as a seller 
So you've, in, you've installed a new roof at the property. Surely I'm going to ask you about you know, who you use, whether you, you now have a warranty in place for the for the roof that you've installed. I don't want to go in and, 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 and realize that the roof's leaking, for example. It needs to be wind and watertight. Give me all the documentation, planning permission, building controls. You need to have that complete set uh, as a seller rather than wait for the buyer to request them. You should have the pack ready. And it's the seller's lister that you really should be guiding them as to what they need to, to, to have um with them so so that's one aspect the buyer having funds ready a lot of the buyers don't usually have funds ready other than you know if they're first-time buyers people haven't thought about stamp duty mm. commercial property buyers haven't thought about the fact that they might be paying stamp duty on the vat inclusive figure of the purchase price mm. so there's always you know there's, there's uncertainty all around um lenders requirements sometimes they can come in requiring a kind of an insurance policy which isn't really available in the market for example and then you speak to insurance brokers and and mind you all of this is happening while the seller and buyer of properties have their own day jobs it's not easy to come in and out of jobs and just try and calling different parties to get all the information across and then obviously set and the solicitors involved um you know that they, they they've got their workload and they need to find time to act on a file the, on the average lawyer will probably look at a file once or maximum twice in a week mm. so that also slows things down and you know i'm not gonna shift liability from lawyers but it is it is the case so all of that combined it becomes really difficult to complete or exchange within two weeks it just it's just very difficult mm. see i look at it and i just think we're, we're still using very old processes and systems in a very modern world and why hasn't that been improved upon when we've got the technology we've got access to nowadays yeah why hasn't that industry in particular tried to quicken things up is it just a case of uh uh old systems and processes and until those older guys sort of die out which sounds awful but it's just the, the reality until those guys die out are, are things just going to maintain the same way no i i think i think technology does have a big part to play but i don't think it's the answer to everything now for example if somebody is telling me that they're buying property with £100,000 in cash, and when I ask them for a source of funds, and when I ask them in compliance with my anti-money laundering regulations, if I ask them to show me evidence of where the funds originated from, and they're asking for bank statements, they're waiting, waiting for bank statements, bank statements are provided to me, and I, I see an influx of half a million pounds from an un unidentified source or a bank account, I then question, where is that coming from? And then by the time the buyer actually gets all the information that I actually need, you're probably looking at two weeks since I first touched upon the upon the topic. Now, law firms can only assist, you know, to to a certain extent. For example, I'll give you an example of my own law firm. We've got somebody dedicated for source of funds. She is a lady who will only and only deal with source of funds. She has no other job description, um, and it's it's just checking people's source of funds, keeping in communication with clients, asking them for bank statements, this, that, the other. But she is only as good as the, the 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 speed of the response coming in from the clients. Now, I'll give you an example. The other week, we had a, a client who, when asked for source of funds, provided us with bank statements with £750,000 coming from overseas. Now, due to compliance with regulations, that's sort of that's alarming for us as law firms because that is a high-risk transaction. Um, so when we asked where that money coming from, it, it came from India. When we asked how the funds originated in India, we were told that they actually sold a property in Singapore. So the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not I'm not saying that they are money laundries. 
we, we're not saying that. We're not doubting them in, in the slightest. All we are saying is just get the document ready, get the document available or the documents available to show us that the property was sold in Singapore. Show us a bank statement showing the money coming from Singapore into the Indian bank account and then the UK uh, bank statement showing the money coming from, from the Indian bank account. Just show us that trail and that would that would just really speed up the process. Now it's been two to three weeks and we haven't got to the bottom of that. With all the technology in the world, that is not something that can be um, you know, uh, taken care of any, any quicker. I think it's the realization from both buyer and seller and the education that they need as to what the solicitor is going to be asking for. Mm. But let's say even ten up to ten years ago, maybe that wouldn't have even been questioned, would it? Or would it? Yeah. I don't know. Well, if if not ten, then definitely twenty. I think the new regulations keep coming into place, and they add more and more onus on the lawyers, or even on the on the buyers and sellers of property to prove various things. Hmm. And a lot of people, as somebody who sold property in two thousand and ten, as compared to somebody who who, who sold property in two thousand and twenty, there's a lot more questions being asked. So yes, more laws and regulations come into place and, and we've got to identify various things before we can proceed. And that isn't helping transactions as far as their speed is concerned. I, mm. I do. So for those who don't know, and using your example there, if the trial of the Singapore property that was sold and the, the money moving into the Indian bank account and then the Indian bank account funds being moved to the British bank account, would there be any issue if that was proven? Would there no. be any more questions? No, no. If if they had shown me all three bank statements showing how the money had moved, mm. evidence that the property was sold in Singapore with a lawyer's letter or, or whatever, I don't know how what the process in Singapore is, mm. but any documentation they could have provided me, and it's literally a common sense perspective, there's nothing legal about it. As long as the trial makes sense, it just made sense. There's no further questions. And we would have spent maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes looking at it and just passed it. Right. Okay. Because as well, let me just add, stick it on this point and try and add to it a little bit. If I, I use bridging funds a lot, as you'd know, yeah. they don't, those lenders don't care, seem to care as much about where that origination of the down payment has come from. Yeah. If I went to NatWest for a resi mortgage, for example, with a resi mortgage, for example, they seem to be a lot hotter on where that money has come from. So legally speaking, it must be, it's not a black, it can't be a black and white thing in that aspect because you've got lenders, private money lenders and bridging funds that are a lot less interested on in where that money's coming from in relation to the more, let's say, regulated industries who really do need to know where everything's going. So it can't yeah. be black and white, it's more grey, right? It is, it is more grey. I think I think one of the reasons why it's the, the, the bridging lenders aren't very, you know, as careful as, as NatWest or, or some of the high street lenders is because they don't lend, in my experience, up to more than 75% LTV, loan-to-value ratio, okay? So there's less risk. So NatWest, if they're handing out 90 or 95% mortgages, they want to make sure that the person borrowing can actually afford to pay. So they go through the bank statements to make sure all the money of, for that first-time buyer is theirs, and it's not coming from you know, gifts from my unidentified source or borrowings, for example. They want to make sure all the money is yours. They want to go through your bank's, bank statements and payslips because also the bridging lender is going to come in and out of the deal within 6, 12 months, 18 months max, whereas NatWest is going to sign a contract with you, presumably, you know, 25, 25 years on average. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah, I, I take your point. There's no black and white, 
which is why the regulated and the and the unregulated industry in terms of lending is is, is slightly different in how they go about things. And it's very difficult and on, on, on the buy, I, I understand that. Um, but a lot of the people doing bridging finance purchases or, or borrowing money you know, from bridging lenders, I think they've been through the mill so, so many times now that they sort of understand the process. I think you're, you're one of those people who know exactly what's going to happen next and mm. you, know, you can prepare. Mm. Although I have to say very recently, it does seem that more and more questions and more and more hurdles have been thrown up, especially the last six to 12 months or so. But do you think that's uh, that varies from lender to lender, and every lender has their own appetite for risk? Yeah, of course, of course. But I think even generally speaking, it seems that like even you know funds like uh, Together Br- Bridging firms like Together Finance, they used to be even up to maybe early COVID times, they were far less picky. Yeah. Than they are today. Maybe that's the state of the economy, which we'll come on to, and they just want to protect their own backside. Yeah. Yeah. That that could be the reason. I mean, they would be rising interest rates. They would just want to make sure that you will be able to pay. Yeah. So from your angle, Zaheem, uh, have you noticed recently a change in, I don't know, buyers and sellers pulling out of deals last minute because of the state of the economy or? Yeah, I think a lot of people, several people have come to us saying that here's a memorandum of sale and we're going to be purchasing this property as a buy to let. And then, you know, they haven't really come back to us because they've been waiting for mortgage offers which haven't arrived. I think it's becoming, you know, harder and harder, especially for buy-to-let uh, investors because the, the rentals need to match up with the interest-inclusive uh, payments that they will have to be making to the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the stress test, as they call it. I think a lot of people are failing that. Uh, and also the, the interest rates have gone through the roof and, and a lot of people cannot afford um to pay lenders back simple as that it's, it's the affordability issue so i think the buy to let um purchases they're at a, at a very sort of low point um first time buyers outside of london i think you know people are still buying you know places like we have a manchester office as you know manchester you know people are buying properties are still affordable even with the interest rate heights um but yeah london's zone one two and three they're very expensive even zone four they're, they're still very expensive mm. are the prices dipping there it's it's um it's a very dif- dif- difficult question to uh, to to answer because in my experience depending on the location of the property and you know schools in my experience being um the number one priority for for young couples uh first-time buyers there's not enough stock and because there is not enough stock, sellers are willing to hold on to properties because they know that in my area, for example, which is Sutton in, in northern Surrey, um, on average, in the estate agents I was working with, they told me on average, every house has 25 viewings. And a lot of these, that is crazy. 25 families trying to move into one house, even if 20 of them cannot afford to buy it now, given the interest rate, five of them can. And if a seller receives five offers for his property, he's not going to lower the price, is he? So, yes, the interest rates have made a difference, but also at the same time, when when people want to move closer to schools, and you know, uh, the, the the stock isn't there, and that's one of the problems that we've seen across the UK. There's just not enough stock in the market. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to change, though, is it? 
Well, not in the not in the foreseeable future. I think unless uh, unless something you know big happens where so many different developments come up and if there's affordable housing and I don't know what's happening with the HS2, but there was a that the whole purpose for the HS2 was to move people out of London so they could commute in. Um, I'm not sure when that. I mean, I know that the the initial completion date was around 20, 2027 or twenty thirty was pushed back to. I don't know where that's got to. But unless something drastic happens, it's I don't see I don't see a major change happening. But by the time that's built, we'll be teleporting about. I think. Of course, perhaps that'll be a waste. Complete waste of time and money. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, Zahim, what, in your opinion, makes a good conveyancing solicitor? Um, that's a good question. I think a good property lawyer needs to understand the objectives of the actual deal. I think it's very easy to think from your client's perspective as a buyer, but what gives you the edge is also think from the other party's perspective. If you're going to ask something which you know the other party isn't going to provide because it's too onerous for, for them, mm -hmm. then while asking, you should give them a common ground which solves the issue rather than prolongs it. Um, so having experience of acting for both sides of the transaction really helps. Being good at communication so that estate agents, brokers, other parties, solicitors, your own client, everyone's kept in the loop so everyone knows what their next steps are. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm in a habit of sending an email, tagging the client saying, can you do this? Sending an email, tagging the estate agent saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to chase the sellers, but you, can you also push at your end? Tagging the mortgage, uh, the um, mortgage broker in the same email saying, any news on the mortgage offer, for example. Everyone knows where everyone is, and that really helps because the property lawyer is supposed to be the anchor trying to pull things um, in, in, in the direction that everyone wants to proceed into. And so it's just clear and open communication, having experience, thinking from both sides of the of the coin, really, um, and just pushing matters along uh, proactively. Mm. Who do you do prefer? You do, uh, your Go on, do you please. Do? Sorry, I was just going to ask, what, what, what is your opinion? Uh, I'm all about speed and dynamism. Yeah, in the in the business world and entrepreneurial world, and uh, and proactivity, um, quick response rates. Um, if there's a problem, to be big enough and quick enough to get onto it without trying to hide around word salads. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what I value the most. And I mean, listen, we're all human. We all make mistakes and mess up sometimes and whatever. But, you know, owning up to all those things. And if there's a problem and it's going to drag out another week, I'd rather know that today rather than in three days. Just things like that, man. Very simple human things rather than the technical aspects of it, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, because we're, and a lot, like, I've done deals like lease option deals where I didn't use solicitors. I just did my own paperwork. This was like 10 years ago, seven or eight years ago, maybe. And some of the issues that cropped up, because that paperwork was weak. I did it myself. I just got it offline off one of these websites and that was really weak. Um, if that took me to court, they'd have won. Like, um, and if there's an issue arise, I sat down with them over the table, over a cup of coffee, and I'd just say, right, this is a problem. Shall we sort out the problem? And 
I look at the business world. Why can't we all just do that? It doesn't make sense to me. Why we need to be forking out thousands and thousands of pounds when, and maybe I'm just thinking from my own head because that's how I act, you know, that's how I yeah. want to do things. Yeah, I was about to say, you, you know, that's how you do it, but you cannot expect another party to do the same. Mm. I've seen, you know, from my experience, anytime somebody has any kind of leverage upon you, they will make sure that they I, I'm not gonna I'm not saying that that's hundred percent of the time, but I've seen where let's say an option period has expired. Mm. By one day, you know, the seller is gonna penalize you. They'll probably ask for another five thousand pounds <laughs> yeah. now in an ideal world you'll sit down with them and say, listen, it's only just one day, it's 24 hours, you haven't lost anything. I would have I would have exercised the option yesterday anyway. You haven't lost anything. You know, it was a Sunday anyway, yes, for example. So, you know, what have you lost? But no, if they can get another five, ten grand of you, they, they will. Which is why the paperwork is important because spending a couple of thousand pounds on the lawyer might probably save you from a lot of hassle down the line. And it's about risk mitigation, isn't it? Because you can get the templates online and everything, mm. but it's just worth paying a lawyer to do it properly. Because if you don't, you've always got in the back of your mind that I'm doing so much background work with all the planning and the drawings and the, and the and the planning application, building control, this, that, the other. What if the paperwork isn't right? And what if my option is expired or I haven't served the option within time? It all goes to waste. Whereas if you've paid a lawyer to do the work properly, then at least you can rely on their advice and make sure you know you carry on with, with the work that you've got to do. Mm. Right, so with regards to the option agreements, Zaheem, there, um, my question about paying solicitors' fees, uh, let's say I get a nominal fee to, for the option agreement, yeah? You put a pound down as a nominal uh, fee in order to get an option and something, let's say, 100 grand um, for the next couple of years, whatever. My risk there is essentially one pound. I don't, don't have any other risk. Why would I go out my way to pay a solicitor two thousand pound to protect the pound? That's a good question. But um, okay, give me an example why you would need the option. Because um, I'm going to get planning on it, and it's going to be worth two hundred once it's done. Two hundred. Two hundred thousand. Once I've got planning, let's say it doubles in value. Planning for what? Um, to put another house on the side of the uh, the option house that I've got, whatever. Okay, so what if there's a restrictive covenant prohibiting development on that piece of piece of land which you're intending to build upon? But I've only put a pound in there, so it doesn't matter anyway, does it? I'll just give it them back. Yes, but by that time, if it's eighteen months down the line, you've worked upon you know all the, the planning application, drawings, paying architects, mm. seven years. Mm. To and to and fro with the with the with the local council, and would you rather not know? And there's a restrictive covenant prohibiting development, or there's something which is wrong with the legal title that needs to be sorted before you go in and make all those efforts and spend all that money. Yeah, yeah, there is, and I'm playing the devil's advocate a little bit in in yeah. what I'm saying. I mean, I would if something today I can get a hundred grand, and it's going to be worth two hundred grand in six months post planning. I look at it and yeah. I go, yeah, it's worth paying the two to make sure everything's, uh, you know, T's crossed and I's are dotted, definitely. Yes. yes. It's just, 
from an entrepreneurial perspective who want things done quickly, if I can sit over a table again with a seller and they can sign the piece of paper to say, yes, you have that option, you have the option now, there's your pound and there's a receipt for the pound. Is there any reason that is any less legal than using a law firm to do that? No. So in terms of legal validity, as long as the contract is in writing, as long as it's been signed by both parties, there's absolutely no concerns there. But obviously, if you're the option holder, mm. and if you're somebody who might purchase the property in the future, you've got to look at various things. You've got to make sure that the person signing the document and giving you the option agreement uh, is the person who legally owns the property. What if it's husband and wife and you're only been dealing with the husband, for example? then it's not legally binding. But how would you check if you haven't done a land registry check? Um, also, how would you protect the option? So if there's two years between you signing the option and perhaps potentially completing on the purchase, what's stopping the seller from just selling the property on to somebody who gives them a good price and the, the, the new buyer, the new owner of the property, would they be uh, bound by what you agreed with the previous seller? Well, you just put an RX1 on title, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. And when you do an RX1, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to tell the land registry who verified the identity of the seller that enters into the option agreement with you. And mm. the identity identity needs to be verified by the solicitor by an ID1 form. So any member of the public cannot make an application to the land registry unless an ID1 form has been completed and signed by a solicitor or barrister or there's some other uh, professionals there. Right. So all I'm trying to say is, yes, there's a cost to it. But if you look at the risks from my perspective and from, from what I know, I would never advise, even if it's a close family member or a friend, to not have a solicitor looking over the documentation. Mm. Because there's a lot of effort, and I know that for a fact, there's a lot of effort that will go in from your perspective in dealing with planning and building control and architects and surveyors and getting the drawings ready. It's, it's a lot of hassle. There's a lot of hard work and cost, and you just do not want that to go to waste. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you, to be fair, Matt. I'm, as I say, I am just playing the libertarian uh, no, devil's no, advocate, to be fair. No, no, that's that's a good question. And a lot, lot of people might ask that. A lot of people call me um, and they want to speak to a property lawyer. And a lot of people value the advice that lawyers have to give. And a lot of people haven't had that bad experience that some developers have had, which mm. is why, you know, they... They think you know we're not really required, and using a lawyer is merely a formality. Where somebody who's had a bad experience because of improper legal paperwork, uh, you know, are more likely to require or, or ask a, a lawyer to assist them because they've they've had a, had a bad experience in the past. Yeah, I agree. If, if we pivot slightly here, um, the American. I watch quite a bit of American YouTube uh, business investing type, you know, just for ideas. And they always seem years ahead of us in terms of like how they put deals together and things. Maybe they're just mavericks in what they do. I don't know. And they've just been brought up with that mindset. But they just seem far more creative on how they put deals together. And that's that's surprising because my uncle's recently bought a property in New York. Yeah. And he's he's grown up in, in the UK. He has several properties in the UK. Mm. He's bought property in New York and he wasn't happy with the experience. Right. He says it's all a bit haphazard. You physically have to go into an office where the, the real estate agent is. 
um, and the salaries and the buyers, you've got to be physically present. There needs to be a check for the deposit or I don't know what he was trying to explain, but apparently from his perspective, he thought that he doesn't have to be anywhere. He can give instructions for a British lawyer via email saying, go ahead and complete up front of the funds and somebody on his behalf can go and collect the keys, which apparently doesn't happen in New York. Now, I do understand that state to state in the United States, the law and the procedures can defer. Mm. But this is from a now New Yorker's perspective. Yeah. Listen, he's gone through that. I haven't bought anywhere over there. So I'm just going on purely on theory and on, uh, you know, YouTube's uh, version of what's, you know, everything's great on YouTube and there's no actual reality there. <laughs> so yeah, I'll take probably your uncle's perspective is probably better than mine here. But if we just go along with it for the sake of this conversation, and uh, yeah. in particular, the deal structure rather than the legal aspects of it. So the deals, they do a lot of like seller financing type transactions where the seller becomes the bank or there's like, they can take over bank loans on subject to, uh, subject to the existing finance. So for example, let, if you use exact figures, let's go for half a million pound property. The debt is... The debt is there or thereabouts half a million as well. Um, and I can go to the seller and turn around and say, right, I'll buy your property subject to the existing finance. Um, and, you know, we'll go through the solicitors, get all that done, put the money in escrow, whatever needs to happen will make happen. Why don't we have those type of deals here? Well, um, I think what you mean by that is transfer of equity. Um, and that is happening i mean it happens it's not very common but it does happen and the reason why it doesn't happen very often is because if i'm walking if for example my sister owns a property as an mm. example and if she's got you know half a million pound worth of property in the uk and she's got an outstanding debt of say four hundred thousand, i would pay a hundred thousand pounds and assume the four hundred thousand pound debt and i'm in the same position as she was mm. that does happen in the uk i've only seen it happen between family members Right. I don't think I don't think these properties or these deals are marketed, and perhaps the reason for that is I don't know how the U.S. banks do it, but any person walking into a debt, they need to be checking, the banks need to be doing their own due diligence to make sure that this person can afford mm. um, the, the 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 debt that is outstanding. Now, if you're going to go through that process again, what's stopping you from getting a new mortgage anyway? Well, why would you replace one mortgage with another when it's there? What's the point? Well, it depends because if that bank, if they are, say, 10 years into a, into a mortgage and they're on a variable rate, surely the buyer would want a new fixed rate for the first five years. Well, and there's but... rates and there's yeah. first-time buyer rates, aren't there? Yeah. So if the, if the buyer is a first-time buyer, surely they shouldn't really be paying the same rate as the seller who is on a buy-to-let mortgage. I don't know how it works in the US, but these are just questions coming into my mind and I'm just thinking out loud. So, Zim, let me give you an example of a deal I did. I think it was about 2016-17, right? Yeah. The guy bought a property for about 95000 The mortgage at the time when I uh, had the phone call was about eighty six, eighty seven, And when I met him, I'd say... I said, Mr. Seller, will you uh, basically let me buy this property for what you owe on it, which was 86, 87? And he said, yes, right? So I could either put down 25% deposit, get a mortgage, blah, 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 go through the process. Or I could just say, right, 
we'll use the we'll go through solicitors and um, we'll do like a lease option agreement or a delayed settlement agreement whereby I put a pound down, nominal fee, and I'll just make the mortgage payments for you for the next 20 years, whatever was left on the mortgage. I think it was 28 and a half years, something like that. And he agreed. He didn't want anything to do with it. He had had a divorce, but the property was just in his name. He lived about 10 doors down with his new lady. He just wanted rid of it. And he did that. He did the deal. So... I never told his bank. He didn't care if I told the bank or not. Um, all I did was, I, in that situation, I got a new direct debit mandate sent out and I just paid it direct from my bank. Yeah. And that, and that was it. Yeah, so these option agreements are common where there's a person who owns a property, not really interested in the property, and if he... If you sign a contract with them, the seller saying, I'll pay your mortgage payments if you're in financial difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, and then I will do some repairs to the property or I'll have a lease option over it for two years, five years, 10 years, whatever they might be. You do some work, so the property goes up in value, you sell it on and you make a profit for yourself having agreed a particular price with the seller. That is happening. It, it, these option agreements are very common. A lot of our, a lot of our clients, you know, get us to to, to draft those kind of agreements. It is happening. Mm. Um, in terms of the first option that you mentioned, where the buyer just moves into the property and becomes the owner of the property legally, I don't see how that would work because the seller has obviously got some equity in there, right? So let's say if it was. 45%, 35%, 30% equity. Why would they sell you for the same amount that they that they're owing on the on the mortgage? Because in the United States, apparently, from what I've heard, mortgage rates are fixed for a longer period of time, so say no, 20, yeah. 25 years, 30 years. Mm. So if that is the case, and somebody's been in a property for five years, initially bought it at 80% LTV, probably brought it down to 75% LTV. Surely they're gonna if they sell it in the open market, they they can sell for twenty five percent, you know, the, the the equity that they've got in the property. But we never know the seller's situation, do we? Yeah, you don't. Because they may be go, they may be losing their business over here and need it gone in the next week or month or something. Yeah, 100%. and those are, those are the people we need to be finding. I mean, we have them come across our desk, but as you'll know, we mainly do commercial stuff rather than residential. But I. Before COVID, it was mainly residential stuff, and we had those come across our desk all the time, that type of property. Well, hopefully not, but I think they might be a lot more coming in the next year or so. I agree, uh, yeah. A lot of people, I, I think more than first-time buyers, I think it's by to let landlords more. The, the larger you know, uh, uh, landlords who have a portfolio of clients and, and, and properties and, and they've got various you know, assets under their belts, I mean, they might still find a way to to leverage one asset against the other whereas mm. you know smaller landlords who've got one or two assets they might struggle because there's only a certain extent up to which they can raise the rent by um, and depending on the location and the nature of the property if they don't achieve what they're supposed to be paying to their lender who knows what will happen i think it will then become a buyer's market and deals like you just mentioned will arrive on your desk mm. Mm. what about if as an investor here, I wanted to uh, provide what could be called like a private mortgage or an installment sale to a buyer, 
Um, so let's say I have a, let's use round figures. Let's say I've got a property for, it's worth a couple of hundred thousand. And I say to a buyer who can't get a mortgage, let's say it's in the current climate. And I say, right, well, put 10% down, give me 20 grand today and I'll finance you the 180 at 6% over the next whatever with a balloon payment on year five. So you've got to pay me off in five years, right? Is that legal? I think you'll, uh, from, from what you've just explained, I think you'll have to be FCA authorized, wouldn't you? If you're lending with interest. But you're not, te- yes, but you're not technically lending the money, are you? There's no money for to go from my bank to their bank. I think you are because you, they still owe you the money. You're creating a promissory note, basically. Yes. So they, they still owe you the money. They still owe you interest. There's balloon payments and there's there's consequences if they fail to pay. Um, now, because this is a house that you just described, where you some you sell it to somebody, you've then got you that you then then enter, um, um, you know the the uh, the regulated market, because, uh, and which is why a lot of these bridging lenders don't lend against uh, residential property if you're going to live in them. Yeah, yeah. Because they're not regulated, so that is it's a lot. It's a lot to do with um, uh, regulation, and also, what if that person goes bankrupt? So you know, you if you're going to repossess the property, then surely there's there's no difference between you and say your NatWest, who's a regulated lender. Um, so there's compliance issues there. Mm. What about if I'm a buyer, Zahim, and I go in there? It's more of a commercial agreement, not a residential one. So the yeah. seller sells to me on those terms. Yeah, and then I just rent it out. There's, yeah, there's there's various issues surrounding. Um, you know, if, if you're a buyer and you do this with a seller, it's kind of arrangement with the seller because um, what you want to ensure is that A, the seller needs to make sure that you can pay from a seller's perspective, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but how would bridging lenders and banks do things? They would first look at your bank statements and income and personal guarantees and this, that, the other to see what kind of assets you've got. If you're not doing that as a seller, then you're putting yourself at risk because if they if the buyer defaults, are you going to repossess the property? Are you going to sell it on? If you're going to sell it on, will it sell for as much as the buyer owes you? From a buyer's perspective, I think there's an element of trust there, isn't it? I would rather owe money to Barclays. Well, I say Barclays as if they never went down under, almost. Um, but as compared to Alex Hickman Limited, because Alex Hickman Limited could owe money to other um banks and he might have this house repossessed from that other bank mm. is this asset guaranteed to me mm. it's just there's just so much involved i need i know what you mean here which is See, why- the, 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 there's a deal coming across with this there's a reason i asked this and this is yeah. going to be a live deal it's probably going to come across you soon but i'm just yeah. trying to tie up the loose ends he wants 130,000 for it it hasn't sold in auction twice Right. So I've gone to him and I've said, yeah, we'll give you the 130 on the proviso that we can make payments on the balance. Right. Um, I'm I'm going to go for no interest. I'm just going to make payments on it over a period of time. He's, I'm assuming, because yeah. he's a smart guy, He, I'm assuming he's going to come back to me and say, well, I'll do that, but I want, I don't know, six, seven, eight percent interest attached to the payments that you're making. Yeah. I look at that. that How is that different from a bridging purchase then? Well, from my perspective, it should be able to be done quicker. I don't need to go through any credit checks. I don't need 
I'm not at the mercy of a lender pulling the plug in the last minute. Um, all, all the fees that come along with bridging loans, which can add up to five, six, seven percent of the loan. Yeah. So I avoid all that. Okay. Um, so I think from a buyer's perspective, what a buyer should do in this kind of circumstances is, is he should get the money transferred to their own name. That is very important. I say, I sorry, I mean, I, I mean the property transferred into their name. So you say, here's a hundred grand. Did you say you were paying a hundred grand on the thirty? One thirty, one three zero. No, but how much are you going to pay up front? No, I'm going for nothing. Are oh, you going for nothing? Okay. Mm. Well, then, in which case, you ask them to transfer the property to you and take a charge over it. Mm. Yeah. If you don't pay, then they repossess the property. So they just put a CH one on title, like a charge. Yeah, like a full charge, a, right. a proper charge detailing what the interest rate is, and you do agree one. Yeah, what each party's responsibilities are, just like a just like a legal charge you would you would sign with NatWest. Similar legal charge, and you keep making the payments. The moment you stop or you're in default of any of your obligation on the charge, then the lender can repossess and and sell it on. That okay. can work. Yeah. yeah, it's about title though. I would always advise a buyer to take the title into their own name for obvious reasons, okay? Even if you were to enter into any kind of financial difficulty, maybe you can raise some funds from a proper lender and pay this mm. guy off, mm. right? Mm. And buy yourself more time with whatever you're doing with the property. From a seller's perspective, I would advise them not to give away the title because what if the buyer becomes bankrupt or, you know, and you've exchanged contracts or, or there could be so many different things that could happen. Um, so in both circumstances, depending on who, ask me for advice, I would say, keep the title for yourself. Anything else is secondary. Mm. So if he wasn't prepared to give me title on that, how would I protect my interests? Well, the one thing you would do is you would sign a contract with him, wouldn't you? You would. Sign I'd contract. exchange contracts, yeah. You would exchange contracts. Once he would exchange contracts, you would note the contract on his title. So that anyone, if he tries to sell the property, anyone looking at the title of the property could see that you, he's actually signed a, a contract in respect of this property already. And that would deter, you know, a lot of people trying to make any kind of deal. Um, one interesting point is what happens if he dies? Do, I've had, do you know what, Zim? I've been in this business eight, nine years. The same questions come up every time and you've asked the same ones. Yeah. So it's what if he dies? What if there's a bankruptcy? What if yeah. this is what? And my answer to the questions that always come back to me is, what do you want? What do yeah. you want to see happen if that happens? And then they usually say, well, I want the contract to pass down to my kids or whatever it, the beneficiaries are or whatever. And then I just say to them, suppose we could put that in the paperwork. Is there any reason that we couldn't do the deal? Yeah. And that's generally the way the conversation goes. Yeah. You could do that. You could do any deal that you want as long as you appreciate the risks and all. Mm. So at the end of the day, it's all instruction led. If the client says, that, for example, there's a restrictive confidential property, I still want to buy this pub, I want to convert it into three houses. I know that there's a risk, but you just carry on, then fine. We had this on the other deal, right? The, the one that we were doing last week. Yeah. I my job is to tell you what the risks are, and your job is to make the decision. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
I tell you what I see a lot of as well, Zahim, is that uh, let's call them property professionals. It doesn't need to be solicitors. It's it's professionals in different areas, accountants and things like that. They very often offer business advice rather than just legal advice in a solicitor's case or accountancy advice in an accountant's thing. I've never the the one industry that has killed most deals from my perspective on the seller's side is always being the solicitor telling them they can't do this and they can't do that and they've gone back some of them have gone bankrupt and lost that been repossessed because they didn't do the deal because the solicitor told them not to yes so i don't know it's just um I think people step out of line and it just kills everything a lot of the time. Which is why when you initially said what makes a good conveyancer, I said in response to that question, every lawyer needs to understand what the ultimate objective is. No two files are the same. Yeah. You could be buying it, you could be buying three adjoining terrace houses for three different people in the same street. One could be buying it to use it as a HMO later with four bedrooms. Yeah. One could be using it as a buy to let, and the and the third one could be using it as 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 its first family home. The due diligence needs to be different, and the way you treat each matter needs to be different, even if they're similar properties in the same street. So as long as that seller's solicitor, in the example that you just gave, if that seller's solicitor didn't realize that his client was on the verge of bankruptcy and he needed to be creative and explain the risk to the client, let the client make a decision and move forward, he might have avoided bankruptcy for the client. Simply mm -hmm. saying no is never the answer. You need to say no, but here's what you can do. Mm -hmm. and, but this carries with so-and-so risk. Mm -hmm. And that is the, is the client that needs to, to make the decision really. Yeah. Do you deal, do you deal much with uh, trusts, trust agreements with property purchases and sales? Well, um, I no, I, I'm not a private client lawyer, but what we do do is, um, I would have a family, say brothers and sisters, who would purchase a property. For some reason, the property can only be purchased in the name of two siblings because they've got solid financial. Again, they've got a solid financial background. The other two, although they're contributing towards the deposit or the maintenance and upkeep of the property, um, they will sign a separate deed of trust saying, you know, although the, the owners of the property are Mr. A and Mr. B, Mr. C and Mr. D also have uh, equitable shares in the property because of X, Y, and Z. So that is the extent of my involvement right. in trust, but not not the not the uh, the formal trust that own property. Yeah, I need to get a, I need to get like a trust person on because I'm I'm intrigued with all that stuff. To be fair, yeah. Um, why Zahim entrepreneurial entrepreneurially? Why did you set up your own firm and not work for somebody else? I mean, um, the 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 corporate um, setup within Central London is informal. Um, and that's because you're supposed to act in a, in, a, in a certain way, you're supposed to behave in a certain way, you're supposed to work in a certain way. Uh, flexibility isn't very easy, especially this is before COVID times, obviously, when you've got to go into work five days a week. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of, it's very, it's very bureaucratic. 
in in how things are done. Yeah, it's very rigid. Um, it's very cutthroat. So if you wanted to take, if you wanted to turn up to the office an hour late because it's your kid's sports day or whatever, for example, yeah, you, know, you couldn't if there was, a, 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 you know, if if you were working for a large law firm, you would struggle to do that. That's what I experienced. And since I became a father, I realized that the I need flexibility. I I work I, pro, I probably work harder now than I did for international law firms, but I do it according to when I can. So I put the kids to bed and then work till midnight if I have to. And that's that's not to say that I'm working any less hard than I was, but it's just that it 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 it's it's within my requirements of of how I want to lead my life and how much time I want to give to family. Mm. That's all up with, with central London. Once you get in the morning, in the morning, once you get on the tube to central London, you don't know what time you'll, you'll come back. So, you know, a lot of people like that. There's it comes with a lot of benefits. The offices are nicer. There's nicer views from the windows. Um, the clients are larger. Um, there's lots of glitz and glamour. The salaries are good. You know, you don't have to worry about how you did in terms of billing for that particular month mm. as opposed to when you're self-employed. Plenty of benefits, but it just it just depends on what exactly means the most to you. Uh, for me, it wasn't the salary, it wasn't the, the, the glamour surrounding the large walls and the glass buildings. It was more to do with family and to have independence, really. Mm. So where do you want to take the firm? I would expand it. I want it to be, uh, you know, who knows what the future holds, but I want it to be in some of the major cities in the UK. We're already in Manchester and London. I want to move to Birmingham, move to Nottingham, move to some of the larger cities in the south. Uh, I'll probably take it internationally. It depends on how long I'm in the game for, to be honest. Mm. You just never know. There might come a day when I say, hang on, like this is enough, and maybe I'm going to join Alex Hickman and we're going to develop properties. But um, for now, it's all progressing. I'm only 32 years of age. Let's give it another eight years and see what, where we get to when we're 40. But yeah, the goal is to expand and expand and grow and grow. I mean, if you're stagnant, then there's no fun doing business. At the end of the day, law firms are a business and you've got to expand the business. Mm. So where can people find you, mate? On you my work? website. So uh, www.rmzlaw.co.uk is a good starter. There's our phone numbers over there. Uh, you can just dial in, ask for me. If I'm available, they'll connect me to you. And if, if I'm not, then I'll get a message and I'll call you back. I have okay. my email address on, online because of yeah, anti-fraud uh, measures. A lot of people you use those email addresses, copy them, yeah. uh, and send fake emails uh, trying to get bank details and stuff. So it's just the phone numbers. Yeah, okay. And if they mention my name, will you look after them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. <laughs> Good. Okay, mate. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, and I think you've just started creating a bit of online content as well, haven't you? So Instagram and all that other good stuff. I have done that. It's just the one video which I showed you, Alex. Um... <laughs> I needed a laugh on a Friday. <laughs> it's taken a while to get that done. Um, but now, hopefully, you'll see more and more content. The people that are editing the videos have asked me to sort of consult them before I go out to shoot um, because apparently there's something that I need to know. So I'm going to have a chat with them over the weekend oh, okay. and beyond onwards, I'm going to start doing it. Yeah, so if you want to laugh, uh, go on his Instagram and uh, watch his video. <laughs> All right, cheers, mate. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me, Alex. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.